0: All right, well, let's go ahead and get started, and I think uh, as folks trickle in, I can open us up in a word of prayer. Father God, we are so thankful, Lord, for your goodness and mercy. We're so thankful for your righteousness, Lord, and we know that your righteousness is also revealed in how you respond to our sin, Lord. And Father, I just pray that as we take a look at the truth about our own sin, our depravity, our culpability, before you, Lord, um, and also to the consequences of that, Lord, I just pray that it would put us in a place where if we don't know you, if we haven't heard the good news of the gospel or responded in faith to the gospel, Lord, that we would be put in that place where we would run to the gospel. And for those of us who have responded in faith to the gospel, I just pray that it would just produce in us just a tremendous thankfulness, Lord, and gratitude and praise and honor and worship to you, Lord, who've given us such an amazing, Message of good news and salvation, Lord. So I pray uh, that your word would do its work um, this evening and just pray that you'd be with me as well uh, to to speak your words, Lord, through me. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. All right, come on in, guys, Um, and the ladies who are here. Well, it is good for me to be with you all this evening, and it's good to be spending time in Romans, and I hope and I trust that Even the time that we have been able to spend in Romans thus far, and even though it's just been a few chapters, it's been profitable. Um, but why are we going through Romans of all the books that we could go through in Logos? Why would Romans in particular be a blessing? Well, all books of scripture would be a blessing, but in the course of living and growing as a believer of Christ, there can be a temptation to become too familiar with the gospel. And if we do so, we can lose an appreciation for it, right? To even stray from the gospel. And that's just to our spiritual detriment because when we stray from the gospel, what is it that we're really straying from? We're straying from the power of God. Paul, the apostle of all the things he could have chosen to focus on in his correspondence with the church in Rome, he did not stray from the gospel. This was his, his correspondence with them, a church that he wasn't able to be with personally, but he leaned into the gospel as the content of what he wanted to preach to them. And it's good for us to be in the book of Romans because rightly understood, it will help to deepen our appreciation for the gospel, which will in turn affect everything that we do. Now, at the same time, I recognize that a lot of people will go through the book of Romans and say that this is a confusing book. And to be sure, Paul does spend the time to unpack the doctrine and theology of the gospel in great detail. And there are parts of it that do get more difficult to understand. But the passage that we'll be focusing on today in Romans 1, I don't think it's one of those difficult to understand parts. Um, If anything, the conclusion and takeaway of Romans 1, or actually just all Romans 1 through 3, is pretty clear. All men and women are sinners who are deserving of God's wrath. That's the takeaway. And despite yet being so clear, Romans 1, and specifically the section that we'll be dealing with today, uh, verses 18 through 25, it introduces a concept that has proven to be a stumbling block for just so many people. When you're sharing your faith, when you're sharing the good news of the gospel with someone, one of the most common objections is how could a good God punish sinners? How could a good God be wrathful? So much so that many professing believers have spent much time and thought trying to explain away and rationalize away the fact that all men are indeed accountable for their sin, and God himself responds to sin with nothing short of holy wrath. Because it's simply unacceptable to an unregenerate mind that God is actually angry at our sin and that our sin is so grievous to him that it would warrant eternal wrath and punishment from God. Now, in the age of tolerance and subjectivity when it comes to morality, the fact that there would be a punishment and wrath for falling short of some divine standard, that's unthinkable. But the truth is, this kind of God is the true God of the Bible, the God whom we praise every Sunday, a God who hates sin and will not fail to carry out justice in his wrath for those who perpetuate sin. The same God of John 3.16, who so loved the world that he gave his only son, is the very same God whose wrath burns against ungodliness and unrighteousness. So let's spend some time unpacking this, and we'll start by reading our text for today. So if you guys have your Bibles, please turn to Romans 1. And while our focus is going to be specifically on verses 18 through 25, I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole chapter so we understand where this occurs in the overall train of thought. Romans 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Firstly, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, That is, we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel." For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, or their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Well, that escalated quickly. Our passage today starts in the middle of this chapter, Paul has already introduced himself and explained his calling in light of the gospel. And in verses 16 and 17, Paul shifts from personal introduction to the heart of his calling and the theme of this entire letter, which is the gospel itself. Now in verse 18, right after introducing this theme of the gospel, Paul immediately moves to the wrath of God. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, whose desire is to preach the gospel, the message of greatest importance to a church that he may not be able to visit in person, he starts off with God's wrath. So, why, in a desire to preach the gospel, the good news? is Paul starting off with the wrath of God. Isn't this the opposite of good news? Isn't this the way to turn people off just by going all in on the wrath of God? But we can see that when Paul introduces God's wrath, he doesn't do so as a brand new topic, but a continuation of Paul's train of thought. For Paul, when discussing the gospel, the wrath of God is not a separate topic but a critical component in understanding what the gospel truly is. And this reveals to us a fundamental truth about the gospel that sometimes we overlook and miss, that the gospel is not about us. The gospel is not about us. The gospel is about God. In Paul's explanation of the gospel, which will unfold over the next chapters, he sets the foundation squarely in truths about God, and particularly two revelations about God. That's our first point. God's revelation sets the foundation for the gospel. God's revelation sets the foundation for the gospel. We see this both in verses uh, 17 through 18. Now, revelation, you guys probably discussed in your groups, it just means God is revealing or showing us something. God is making something apparent to us or pulling back the curtains. Verse 17 talks about God's revelation of righteousness Verse 18 talks about the revelation of God's wrath against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, these two revelations about God are the bedrock and foundation for which the gospel can really come. Just as you build a, when you build a house, you first have to ensure that you have a solid and level foundation. Otherwise, the house is going to be shaky. Paul's exposition of the gospel in Romans stands on these two unshakable truths about God. That he is righteous and that he is wrathful against the unrighteous. Paul starts off what is essentially a multi-long chapter unpacking the finer points of the gospel with the truth that God is a wrathful God. Now, when we talk about the wrath of God, we can't think of it on the same level as our experience of anger. When we think of anger, we think something happens to us and then we blow up. And then the wrath of God here is not just talking about like a one-time blow up. Like if someone cuts you off on the freeway or if you wait on hold for too long, you get angry and you blow up. No, the wrath of God is an abiding and consistent anger that can't be satisfied with just some time or distance and a cooling off period. John Murray writes in his commentary on Romans, Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. So, translating that, essentially, God is angry because God is holy. God is angry because God is holy. His wrath is a natural byproduct of his holiness, and specifically, it's our unholiness and our unrighteousness, which violates and offends his holy nature and incites his wrath. God's holiness is unchanging. Therefore, as hatred and his wrath towards sin, that which violates his holiness, it doesn't ebb and flow. It's not inconsistent depending on what kind of day God is having. Because that's how our anger works. God is not only sometimes angry at sin. The wrath is there. It's just not fully expressed or carried out at all times. If God carried out his wrath fully and immediately, we would not be here. Sometimes people will make a distinction between the wrathful God of the Old Testament and then the loving and kind God of the New Testament. But God's unchanging. The God of the Old Testament did not change in his character or his hatred of sin between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was no costume change for God in the intermission between the OT and the NT. He's the same God. He hated sin when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and he continues to hate sin the same today. We can't take the parts of God that we like and then reject the other parts of God that we don't like. God has revealed himself to us in different ways, and the question is, how do we respond then to what God has revealed about himself? Will we respond in worship or rejection? That's really what it comes down to. So God always hates sin. It's just a matter of how is that hatred being expressed or revealed? And make no mistake, it is already being revealed. Verse 18 is present tense. It says that the wrath of God is revealed. It's something that, has been re- that had been revealed at the time that Paul is writing to the Romans. And it's still revealed now and you might look around and you might wonder it well it doesn't look like the wrath of god has been revealed the world is still here i haven't seen the fire and the brimstone rain down on earth and smite evildoers and that's right the final judgment has not yet happened that is yet to come. There will be a future event, an outpouring of God's wrath that we read about in the book of Revelation. The event of God's wrath in final judgment comes later. But make no mistake, the wrath and judgment of God has already begun. There are present consequences to our sin and unrighteousness. And you can see this in the visible effects of the fall, starting in Genesis 3, But we see this in a more specific way, and we'll touch on this a little bit later on. But first, let's talk about what is God angry about? The text says, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, ungodliness refers to any attitude or action that lacks appreciation for who God is. Another word is irreverent, or acting in a way that does not revere God. It's an attitude that functions as if God were not God you're essentially erasing God from your worldview. Now, unrighteousness refers to an opposition to God and his character, where we don't stand for the things that God stands for. And if God were to judge the unrighteous, the verdict is guilty. The text goes further to explain how our unrighteousness expresses itself. And that is in suppressing the truth, suppressing the truth. So those who are unrighteous, including each of us, at some point in our lives, suppress the truth. To suppress, that is an active word. It's not so much that we're passively just ignorant of the truth and therefore we're not liable or responsible to act with that knowledge, but we do know the truth and we choose to suppress it rather than act in accordance with it. It's an active opposition to the truth. And this word gives the idea of holding something down or restraining something. I think of if you ever try to hold a beach ball under you know, the water and it keeps on trying to come up. This is a volitional thing. It's done with intent and purpose. One doesn't accidentally suppress the truth. In the evil of our hearts, we try to remove responsibility sometimes by saying, oops, I just didn't know. Oops, I didn't know that you existed, God oops i didn't know that you were deserving of all the praise and thanks god or oops i didn't know that was wrong oops i just didn't know and we see that tendency in ourselves that attitude makes a mockery of the revelation of god saying that god did not give us enough information that he didn't reveal enough for us to be liable and culpable for our actions that we were just not informed. But did God not reveal himself? Yes, he did. And in actuality, we do know. We know, and yet we resist the truth that God has revealed to us. So this is like if your coworker takes your food from the office fridge and says, I didn't know that it was yours, but you had left the sticky note with your name on it in big block letters they had the information they had your revelation that it was your food they just rejected it and ate your food the truth about god is apparent it is obvious god left his sticky notes all over the universe and in our hearts in his righteousness his morality who he is what he deserves it's all there and we push it out of the way we turn our backs We cover our ears and we close our eyes. We suppress the truth of God that is right in front of us. You can't look at our world and our reality and somehow miss God. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. We suppress the plain knowledge of God. What God reveals to us about himself naturally The truths that we suppress are not the hidden truths that require some special knowledge and an advanced degree. These are not truths that you even need to have a Bible translation in your language to grasp and to understand. These truths are universally grasped by all, even those who are in some remote tribe, untouched by missionaries or evangelists, the truth of God is revealed and known to them. They're plain, not complex, not hard to understand, because God has shown it to them. The world is formed and designed in such a way that points to and testifies to the truth of God. Now, this section of Romans, specifically in chapter one here, it's specifically referring to the Gentiles, the pagans, those that were not blessed to have the Old Testament scriptures in their history, the Pentateuch and the prophets. While the non-Jewish world may not have had the detail about God that the Jews received in the Old Testament scriptures or that we have today in our Bibles, they do have the plain, natural revelation of God given in the creation. The text goes on to detail in verse 20, that even though we cannot visibly see with our eyes the attributes of God, his eternal power and his divine attributes, they are clearly perceived. You don't need your eyes to have proof about something. And what has God revealed to us? It's not how he physically appears. It speaks of his invisible attributes and specifically his eternal power And divine nature and basically this is summing up the truths about who god is the fact that he is god the fact that he exists and the fact that he is different and set apart from us and is worthy of our praise and our thanks we can't claim that we have no proof of god that we can't see him because even if we can't see him we all perceive who he is through creation the text says that he is revealed in the things that have been made And this testimony has been there since the beginning of creation. None of us predate this revelation. All of us were born into a creation that is and has been bearing witness to the existence of God. If you guys can turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 highlights this. I'll read verses 1 through 4 for us. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Pretty comprehensive. The heavens declare the glory of God, meaning they're talking to us. The sky proclaims his handiwork. They are publicly announcing God is at work here. Every day, all day, every night, all night, there is speech or revelation about God spewing forth from creation. So we can't miss it. We can't turn that off. We can't say that we don't know about God when literally all of creation, including us and our own consciences, are telling us about him. So what's the point of this argument? It is to completely negate our ability to claim ignorance. It's so that we cannot say that, you know, yeah, I ignore God, I neglect him, but it's just because I didn't know about him. I don't know who he is or what he deserves. But we are guilty of suppressing the truth in ungodliness and unrighteousness. We can't make excuses. And this is exactly where the text leads us. At the very end of verse 20, we have the same conclusion here that men are without excuse. And it tells us this plainly. This removes any hope that we can have to remain guiltless or justified apart from the gospel. That's bad news, but that is also critical news for the gospel. This isn't just to establish bad news to make good news seem even better. But it's the whole basis and the reason and the purpose of why the gospel is necessary. It's because all men are without excuse. The bad news is not just a byproduct of God's revelation. These things were created and revealed to all men in such a way to ensure that no man has an excuse. That no man could fall outside of the need, their need for justification and righteousness through faith. This is so that there would be no loophole where you can bypass the gospel, no exception so the gospel can be what it is, the power of God for the salvation of all men. So we have no hope other than God himself. You see, this sets the foundation for the rest of Romans. It lays the groundwork for the message to come, the good news that we can be justified by faith in Christ alone. Now let's move into our second point in our outline. This is man's rejection of God. Shows us our need for the gospel. Man's rejection of God. Verses 21 through 23 and also in verse 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things down to verse 25 because they exchanged the truth about god for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen given that each of us has the knowledge of god it comes with the responsibility it comes with an implicit call to acknowledge god as creator worship him honor him and give him thanks we're supposed to experience god's creation be humbled by it marvel that someone's behind all of it and express honor and gratitude to him if given the revelation of god the appropriate response should be worship because that's what god's character demands it demands worship but things take a turn here because rather than worship or thanks Man's universal response is rejection, universal. We deny the creator of the universe, the righteous and holy one, the things that he is due. And that's not benign. Those without God might say that. So what? Then I don't acknowledge him as God. That's not bad per se. It's just my opinion. That's my stance. It's not neutral to deny God what he is due. Withholding worship from a God who is worth and due that worship, it's not morally neutral. It is evil. It's contrary to the righteousness and holiness of God. And when we withhold worship from God, it sets us on a path that spirals away from God. If we continue on in the text, it says, after not honoring the God who revealed himself, Not giving thanks, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So our dishonoring of God does not just remain stationary. It's directional. It leads us somewhere. Specifically, it leads us away from him. It brings us to a place where our thinking is futile and our foolish hearts are darkened. When it says futile in our thinking, it's not talking about our intelligence, but about our spiritual discernment. Spiritually, we are incapable of arriving at the right answer because we can't see the truth of God's goodness. It's because our hearts are already set against him. And the text says our hearts are darkened. It's communicating a similar idea here that we're incapable of honoring God anymore. The desire to know or understand God gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And this is all describing what you guys probably discussed in your groups. So we call depravity. We can't pull ourselves out of the state that we are in. Not only will we not win in a fight against our foolish hearts and darkened thinking, we would not even oppose these things in the first place. It's not that we're weaker than our enemy and we can't overcome them. We are the enemy. We have met the enemy and it is us. So not only are we broken, not only do we not have the ability to fix ourselves, we are the ones doing the breaking and we don't even realize that we need the fixing. What we need is something outside of ourselves to shine light into our dark hearts and revive our spiritual deadness and to renew our minds. You see how this is setting the stage? for the good news of the gospel to come in. Now we could go on. We only go down to verse 25 in our passage today, but you know, we read on, and you guys read on in your study uh, in the study guide. Not only is our depravity defined by what we withhold from God and don't do, it keeps on going. We actively replace God in our hearts with other things. Claiming to be, be wise, we became fools. We replace the wisdom of God with the empty, futile thinking of man, and then there is this ungodly exchange that happens. If you do your exegesis through this passage, exchange comes up over and over and over again. Not just neglecting God in creation, but then elevating our own wisdom that denies God, and then more exchanges. The text says we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Creation was supposed to be a pointer to the creator that we might worship him, but man has so perverted it that we take the very things that were meant to tell us about God and testify of him and turn them into gods themselves to replace him. Mortal, earthly, crawly, created things in place of the immortal God. And you can see a progression even here going from God to mortal man, who at least should have the image of God, to birds in the sky, to animals who walk on the ground, all the way down to creepy, crawly things, literally things that crawl and slither on the ground. We get further and further and further away from the glory of God. Now, the immortal God radiates glory or or brightness. Glory is like a bright, shining light the expression that you can see of the value or the worth of something now we take that glory of the immortal God and exchange it for mere images It says images not even things but images of things that look like things pictures statues things that resemble creation fuzzy depictions are supposed to remind us of some aspect of creation these things were often carved into wood or stone Does that sound like a foolish exchange to you? Immortal for mortal, creator for creature, glory for just an image or picture. Now, this is the exchange that specifically the the pagan or Gentile people made. But this is the exchange that we all make. This is our offense against God. At this point in the progression of depravity, how? distorted has our worship become. But this is the result of thinking that has become futile and hearts that have become darkened that we would make such a foolish exchange, all the while thinking that we're doing the wise thing. We've continued down the spile from having a knowledge of God and creation testifying it to denying it and withholding our worship to then actively replacing and elevating other things and worshiping other things and taking things that are less than God and treating them as if they were God and then devoting ourselves to them. That's what idolatry is. And later on, if we were to continue, we can see that this is not the last stop on the depravity train. If God does not step in with grace and truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ, that evil escalates more and more. And we get further to where we would even actively celebrate and approve others who practice evil and hate God. We become cheerleaders for evil. But how does it get there? This leads us to our last point in our outline, verse 24. It's God's response to continued rejection. God's response to continued rejection, and it shows us who we are without the gospel. How does it go from having our hearts darkened at the end of the chapter dishonorable passions homosexuality debased mind that thinks good is evil and evil is good who are filled with covetousness malice envy murder strife there's so many here you know inventors of evil you're coming up with new ways to be evil too and even to give applause to those who are doing evil to encourage it it gets there because at some point god gives sinners over or gives them up to their own evil desires. He lets them go. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Part of God's current expression of wrath and judgment against the unrighteous is that they get what they want. They get to pursue their sin to their heart's content and reap the consequences of their sin, where they're no longer restrained or held back from the things that are going to assure their own destruction. When we continue to practice ungodliness and reject God, we see that a part of God's wrath and indictment of our rebellion is to allow the ungodly to continue on the path away from Him. He removes any graces that restrain us from further evil, so that, the, so that we would wholeheartedly plunge into more and more condemnation. They're just allowed to keep piling up the list of charges against them, which they will one day face the full punishment for. We talked earlier about how when verse 18 says that the wrath of God is revealed, that is an ongoing and present thing, something that's going on now. And this is it. It's when God lets sinners have their sin. When idolaters who don't worship God are no longer held back from worshiping what they love most. We don't typically think of getting what we want as wrath and judgment. But when what we want leads to our destruction, it is. For the unrighteous and the godly, when they claim that God can't be a God of wrath, if you ever share the gospel and that becomes an objection, you can't be a God of wrath. But God is a God who just lets things go, let things slide, lets sinners continue in their sin without judgment. They don't realize that letting sinners continue in their sin without judgment is the very act of God's judgment upon them. Brothers and sisters, if you think you, if you are in sin and you think you are getting away with it, I fear for you because being allowed to continue in your sin to get away with it is not God's grace to you. It's God's judgment. This is where we end up if we reject the grace of God, if we reject the gospel of God, we're allowed to pursue our sin, have what we want to pile up and store up more and more wrath for ourselves in eternity. You know, as a parent, I restrain my children from evil. Any good parent should and would. If I see my daughters acting foolishly, I provide some restraint and discipline to keep them from continuing further down the path of foolishness. Now, they're already on the path of foolishness. That's where they start. But they certainly could continue further down that path faster if it weren't for a parent's restraint. I hold them back from acting out their foolishness and the desires of their heart, because I know they will destroy themselves otherwise. So for us studying Romans now, why are we covering this? Why are we spending time talking about the wrath of God and the depravity of man? These descriptions are talking about Gentiles who dug in their heels against God. It's not talking about those in the church who responded in faith to the gospel, is it? If you're a Christian, you're not under wrath. This doesn't apply anymore, right? First Thessalonians 5.9, it says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So why cover this? Well, nope. Paul covers it himself. Paul's recipients of this letter, they're the church in Rome. Paul is preaching the gospel to the choir and the rest of the church in Rome because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And the cross is the place where the wrath of God and the righteousness of God are both fully displayed. The gospel is the message that the righteous wrath of God was satisfied upon the Son of God, Jesus Christ, so that we, the unrighteous, would receive the righteousness of God through faith alone. The depravity of man is about more than just the individual occurrences of sin that we experience in our lives. This is not, I'm a bad person because I do bad things. But the depravity of man is saying, no, your entire system of worship is an affront. God you do bad things because you are a bad person that's who you are that's who I am and without a savior outside of myself upon whom I can wholly cast my fate and depend on his mercy I'm lost I have no hope a drowning man can't pull himself out of the water without something else to pull on I need a savior And God has provided a savior in his son who has saved me and continues to save me, reforming my worship and reversing the exchange that I once made. Earlier, we summed up that the whole of man's offense to God as an issue of this unholy exchange, whereby we take and exchange what is of infinite value, the truth of God and the glory of an immortal God for that which is of little value. Images resembling mortal things. And the way that God corrects that and restores things is also by making an exchange. God traded what is of infinite value, the righteousness of his son, for what is worthless, our unrighteousness. Second Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God and exchange his robes for mine. Without an understanding of our depravity before God, the extent of our offense against him, and the wrath of God that is being revealed, what would the gospel be? Good news? No, thank you. I'm good. The gospel would not be the gospel. But because we realize the wrath of God being revealed, because we're totally depraved and cannot save ourselves having offended a holy God, is the gospel good news? It's the best news. It's freeing, wonderful news that changes who we are. So the point of this is that we are given the opportunity to consider our own state before God and exactly what we have been saved from. That we, so that we can appreciate all the more the power of the gospel in our lives and the God who is deserving of our honor and our thanks. So let's consider our sin. Let's consider the wrath of God that was meant for us. And then let us consider the gospel and let us thank God dearly for the gospel that saves us. Let's pray. Father God, what an amazing message of hope because left to ourselves what terrible news that there is a wrathful God that we are depraved sinners and that we have no excuse but how wonderful it is to know that you are a God of mercy who while preserving your righteousness and justice Lord you have also provided a means and a way that we might be saved. So, Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing these things to us, Lord. And we even thank you, Lord, that we are without excuse. Because if we were given another way, another path, apart from the gospel, how many of us would walk on it? None. But because all hope was removed before all hope was given to us in the gospel, Lord, We know we can be saved because of your work in our lives and your work on the cross. So we thank you for these things. In the name of Christ, amen.